Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Psalm 88. I mentioned Sunday evening, and that might be, I don't know, we got a good amount of people here, but that might be why we're missing a few. Um, <laughs> psalm 88 is known as the saddest psalm in the Bible. And as we read it in a moment, I think you will agree with that assessment. Instead of the uh, typical moving from fear to faith outline that we find in so many psalms where, where sorrow or crying is found at the beginning, maybe David or a psalmist, whoever it is, expressing to God in prayer, uh, sorrow over their current circumstances. That might begin the psalm. Usually we find this middle point where who God is, what God has done, what God has promised to do, that is focused on instead of fear. And then, and then by the end of the psalm, we find whoever was previously sorrowful or full of fear, we find them resting in God with faith. And that trajectory is not here in Psalm 88. Um, I'm going to ask if you guys in the back, could you put this one verse from Isaiah 42 up on the screen behind me now, just so you don't have to turn there. Um, it's one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. It's a prophetic verse about what Jesus would be like for those who are hurting, or who are going through some touch pat, tough patch in their life. It says, a bruised reed, he, talking about Jesus, shall not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. That's what Jesus would be like. You can go back to the sermon title slide. But when you think about that verse, have you ever felt like a bruised reed? Well, it might be tonight. Have you ever felt like you're just bent over by the winds of, of pain? What about a smoking flax? The idea there is like a candle wick. It's got one little ember left about to go out. Um, there's a spark, but it's just not going to do much. Well, well, that is where the human author of Psalm 88 is in his life. Um, Heman, probably Heman. I know Heman's a funny name, but um, I'm not, and I'm going to say Heman. So I'm just let's just say Heman. But um, that is a human author. It says, look at the superscript. It says a song or psalm for the sons of Korah to the chief musician upon Mahalath Lenoth, the maskal of Heman, the Ezraite. So it's a psalm or song for the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were the I guess you'd call them praise team or the choir that would lead God's people in corporate worship. And then upon Mahalath Lanoth, really don't know. Is that an instrument? Uh, is it a tune, the tune of this song? Uh, whatever it is, Mahalath refers to illness or sickness, and uh, Lanoth refers to affliction. And that's present in this psalm. And then finally, it says it's a masculine, and we've seen that in a couple psalms. That means it's a teaching or an instructive psalm. And so there's something that God wants us to learn from this saddest song in the Bible. And we can learn how barely flicker in embers, how they can endure. Let's read it together. Psalm 88, O Lord God, 
of my salvation. I have cried day and night before thee. Let my prayer come before thee. Incline thine ear unto my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that hath no strength, free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. My wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Selah. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination unto them. I am shut up. I cannot come forth. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon thee. I have stretched out my hands unto thee. Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Selah. Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave, or thy faithfulness in destruction? Shall thy wonders be known in the dark, and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee. Lord, why castest thou off my soul? Why hidest thou thy face from me? I'm afflicted, ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They came round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and my acquaintance into darkness. Let's pray before we study this. Father, as we come to your word, there might be some people here tonight who who've say, man, I can relate to that. And that's one of the things we love about the Psalms and, and what a grace it is that you give us that when we come to this hymnal that you have divinely inspired, that you put songs even like Psalm 88 that we can identify with because there are times in our life when we might feel like Hammond does here. We might feel exactly like he does here. And God, I pray that through the promises in your word tonight, Whenever we find ourselves feeling this way, like he does, we would lean on the hope that those promises offer to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's three problems that Heman has here. If you've got an outline, one of the, there's some in the back, some up here, if you've got one. Uh, Heman, I know, funny name. When I was a kid, we used to watch a cartoon. It was He-Man. Uh, or one of the little rascals had... The He-Man Woman Haters Club, or something like that. Um, but He-Man's in the Bible. In 1 Kings 4.31, I was reading that the other day. It tells us that he was a wise man. Uh, he's, he's almost as wise as Solomon was. Uh, and he's the brother of Ethan, the Ezraite. If you look at Psalm 89, that is the human author of Psalm 89. Um, so this was an Old Testament character. First Chronicles mentions him as a singer who led worship in David's day. But he's got three problems, and they're evidenced in this psalm. They all stem from incorrect thinking. There's not just sorrow that's expressed in this psalm. There's a lot of, there's a lot of incorrect thinking, even in, incorrect theology, incorrect perspectives on God that we read about, that we just read about. Um, what you think is important, isn't it? How you think? Very important. Uh, especially about God. What do you think about God? Uh, attitude determines actions. A.W. Tozer, I quote him a lot. He's one of my favorite 
pastors, theologians, authors. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, that's a book about knowing God's character, knowing God's conduct toward his people. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes to your mind when you think about God? It's the most important thing about you because you were created for worship. And your worship of God, it'll be as pure or it'll be as base, impure, uh, as the worshiper entered either high thoughts about God or low thoughts about God. Um, and so for this reason, the most significant question that's before the church is always God himself. And the most serious fact about any man is not what at any given time he may say or do, but what deep in his heart he conceives about God. The most revealing thing about a Christian or a church, a group of Christians, is their idea about God, who he is, what he's done, what he's promised to do. First of all, we find that Heman has this problem. He has an incorrect view of his condition in verses 1 through 7. Actually, verse 1, 1 and 2, that, that is the single shining sliver of hope in this whole song. It's the only concretely positive or uplifting verse. Heman calls the Lord, the God of my salvation, in verse 1. And I'm glad that he does because the rest of this song is full of despair. But it is important that we notice, even that, though that's the case, this entire song, though it's full of sadness, it's a prayer, isn't it? Entire song is a prayer. And that's noteworthy. And here's why. Because a heart that's still praying, has it given up hope completely? No. Um, hope is yet present when prayer is going on. Heman might be at the end of the rope, his rope because of all that he has endured. And, and in one of those verses, uh, it said from his youth. <laughs> uh, Tommy and I were talking about this from that old movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? There's that song, Man of Constant Sorrow. That's kind of what you read here. And when he says in verse uh, 15, I'm afflicted and ready to die for my youth up. This, this isn't just like, oh, I had this bad thing happen this week or this month. I mean, and his life testimony, suffering and, and struggling. Uh, but he's still hanging on because he's praying. So while he might be a bruised reed or a flickering ember, his prayer to God is evidence that he still has faith and that that faith is being expressed and exercised. And so we've got an example. Should we find ourselves in a similar place? And then notice in verse 1, his prayer is a cry. It's audible and it continues day and night. So it's continual. It's a fervent prayer. In verse 2, he pleads with God to bend down and to hear that continual cry. And look at verse 3, because this is where the specific content begins. The soul is full of troubles. There it is again. This is not like a one-time isolated incident. Uh, his soul is full of troubles to the point that he feels like his life is nearing its end. And then what it says in verse 3, I'm, my soul is full of troubles. My life draweth nigh unto the grave. And then verse 4 talks about it more. And verse 5 talks about it more, just using different uh, words for grave, whether it's pit or, or darkness. And um, so he's so full of troubles that it seems like his life is nearing its end. Or at least he feels like that's the case. Have you ever felt that way? Not that you were just dealing with something tough, but that your life, at least at the moment, was full of something toughs, plural. 
and to the point where you honestly thought that you might die. And that's where Heman is right now. Now, we do not know that he was about to die, and this is why this is an incorrect perspective on his condition. We don't know that he was about to die. It doesn't say that here. It just says he feels like that was the case. And honestly, Heman doesn't know that he's about to die. Who's the only one who knows when it's our exact time to leave this earth? God. Only God. No. Later in Psalm 139.16, God tells us that every day of our lives was written out in his book before there was even one of them, before we were even born. So, so Heman, like maybe us at times, we might feel, I felt like that. I felt, might be, this might be it. <laughs> we might feel like we're going to die, but that's not what he says here. In these verses, he says, I'm about to, and he has an incorrect view of his condition. He has an incorrect view of God. He has forgotten who is in control of his existence from his birth to this moment right here. It's sustainment all the way to its end. It's God. It's God who is in control. And so if we're going to not continue on in despair, it's important that any incorrect views that we might have will be corrected with truth, like the truth of Psalm 139, verse 16, that every day of our life was written out that God is sovereign and in control of our lives. Now, there's, there's one more incorrect view in this section. If we go to verse 7, Haman says, Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves. Selah. So in this prayer, Haman tells God, Your wrath lieth hard on me, God. You've afflicted me with all your waves. And so his thinking is spot on in one aspect, that last phrase, uh, you have afflicted me with all your ways. Because God is sovereign, anything that human will face or anything you and I might face, um, it is ultimately sent and governed by God. The good and the bad. Now we can look to the book of Job for an example, right? Did Job endure some things? <laughs> Probably on par. In fact, so many commentators, they see similarities between everything Job experienced and what this psalm describes um, yeah. Who wanted to cause Job all that pain and suffering? Satan. Satan did. But who did Satan have to go to for permission to do it? He had to go to God. Who restricted what Satan could do? Very specifically, God did. So both Satan and God had purpose and design in what Job experienced and what humans experienced and what you and I experienced, whatever comes our way. Satan's got one design in it. wants to destroy your faith. God has another design in it, just like Job, just like Heman. He wants to build your faith. The incorrect view of verse 7 isn't that God was overseeing and governing and sending um, these tough circumstances that just felt like waves that just kept coming. Um, the incorrect view is in those two first words of verse 7, thy wrath. And we got to give Heman a, a kind of a bit of a gimme here because he lived before Jesus Christ came and died and rose from the grave for us. Heman lived before Jesus Christ bore God's wrath for us on our behalf on the cross. For Heman, that had been promised. It had not been performed just yet. But you and I, we live on this side of the cross. We live on this side of Jesus bearing the wrath of God on it for all who trust him as Savior. And that's the key point I want you to take away from this 
The incorrect view is that this was God's wrath on Haman's life because Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross for our sins. Whenever we go through even, even the worst possible, worst conceivable circumstances in life, it is never, it is never coming our way because of the wrath of God. Never. And we might be called to face, we might be called to endure similar, even lifelong tough situations like Haman does here, but if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is never the result of God's wrath on you. He has a purpose in you experiencing it, but it's never punitive. That's been taken care of on the cross. The blood of Christ does not need help. It was adequate to cover all of our sins. This isn't because of wrath. It's not punitive. God's intent in anything we might experience, just like it was for Job, like it is for Heman here, it's not punitive. It's purifying. Do you understand what that means? It means it's for your good. How in the world could it be? It's what's promised. It's for his glory. How would this bring you glory? It's the promise. It might be weeks. It might be months. It might not be on this side of eternity. Can we trust the promise of God? And we've seen instances. He gives us those little gifts of grace to go, yeah, this is how it works to reinforce our faith. John 16, 33, Jesus promised that if you follow him, you will have tribulation. Romans 8, 17 to 18, 2 Corinthians 1, 5, 2 Corinthians 4, 10, Philippians 3, 10, 2 Timothy 2, 12, 1 Peter 4, 13. Those are just a few verses from the New Testament from this side of the cross that promise the Christian that just like Jesus Christ, we will suffer. But there's purpose behind it. It's never God's wrath. It's always for our good and for God's glory. Verses 8 through 10. There's a second incorrect, incorrect view that uh, Heman has here. There's an incorrect view of his isolation. Another typical characteristic whenever you experience fairly intense suffering um, is described in verses 8 through 10. It's isolation. He says in verse 8, Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination to them. I'm shut up and I cannot come forth. He, he says something similar in the last couple of verses. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me. Verse 18, so on. Heman feels alone. He might have actually been somewhat alone. Uh, some commentators think that Heman was going through a serious illness. And there are so many parallels to Job. Um, was Job alone? We had a wife, right? Was she a big help <laughs> in what he's going through? He had three friends. So that's why I say somewhat. He wasn't alone. And, of course, we're never alone. We'll, we'll get there. Uh, but he, it might have been leprosy. We have no record of that, but just through the description here. And you know what it was like for lepers in the Bible, if that's the case. They're outcasts experienced a loss of everything. Their, their family, they had to go live outside. Actually, they got a new family, didn't they? A family of other lepers. And so I'm not highlighting that as a positive trade-off, just the facts. But in verse 8, Heman describes not just an abandonment by his friends and family, this acquaintance, those close to him, but, but they actually saw him or what he was experiencing as an abomination. And that's a very strong word when you come across that in the Hebrew. It's, it's like the same word that's used for sacrificing your child, throwing it into the fire to worship Baal or Moloch. That's how they saw Heman because of what he was going through. So again, just like Job, his friends, 
So what have you sinned? How, you know, why don't you just confess your sin and get right with God, Job? Um, verse 9 describes Heman's continued fervent prayer resulting from this isolation or feeling of isolation, even to the point where there, I mean, he's got physical displays of dependence on God. I stretch out my hands before you, God. Earnest, fervent prayer. We don't know the specifics of what Heman endured in this abandonment of his friends and family, but, but I still do believe this is an incorrect view of his isolation that's described here. Um, it is a very dangerous one for the Jesus follower to have, and, and I believe God's given us a little grace here, just preparing us. Look, that feeling will come. When you're going through suffering, suffering very natural, very human thing uh, for you to feel. And it's dangerous if it's not addressed. Because we need each other. We need to lean on each other when, go, when we go through tough times. We need to, if we're witnessing someone in our church family that's going through that, the church is, is to come around them and support them. And then, and then on the flip side, um, that's not just God's design in his church. It's God's design in, in what he wants his church to do for you when you are going through that suffering. And I'll give per- personal testimony um, in my own life, but I've seen it in the lives of others. It's a very natural thing. Not a good thing. It's a natural thing. But often when these feelings of isolation come amidst suffering, there's a withdrawal <laughs> by the person who's going through it that just makes matters worse. And as an example, I take you to Elijah on Mount Carmel. You remember that? You got prophets of Baal here. You got Elijah and they set up this altar. Because Elijah's just had it. <laughs> He's like, choose. Decide. Quit wavering between whether you're going to serve God or serve Baal. And you know what happened. And they try to call on fire. It doesn't work. And then he does. God, God does it through him. There's great revival there. People bow down. It's, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Obviously, we, we've seen it. And um, the very next day, Queen Jezebel hears of it, what happened there that there was this revival. People aren't worshiping idols anymore. They're worshiping God. And that Elijah had killed the prophets of Baal. And she makes a vow to kill Elijah by the end of the day. Honestly, that's nothing new for Elijah. <laughs> that was a constant threat from Ahab and Jezebel. But it impacted him. And he freaks out and he runs off into the wilderness. God did not tell him to do that. He just did, isolated himself. He, he sits down against a tree and he says, it's enough, God. I'm done. I'm ready to die. This is all too much for me. And he says this, listen to this. I'm the only, only faithful one here in Israel. It's just me. I'm the only one that's living for you. I'm all alone in this. Now, was that the case? No. Um, so notice that at the threat of some terrible circumstances, Elijah withdrew. He completely forgot I mean, he didn't bring up anyway who God is, what God had just done like 24 hours earlier. Fire came down. Revival happened. But at a threat, he forgot what God had promised. All that went out the window. Kind of reminds me of uh, what it says there at the end of verse 15. I'm afflicted and ready to die for my youth up. While I suffer thy tears, I am what? I'm distracted. <laughs> I've forgotten who you are and what... You have done and what you've promised to do. And Elijah willingly left being around others who could remind him of these things, who could encourage him of these things. He isolated himself. No, he wasn't the only one in a still, small voice 
God comes before him. And he reminded, God reminded him, I've got 7,000 who are still in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. They've remained faithful to me. Elijah wasn't alone. And He-Man here isn't alone. In the Gospels, this feeling is there. Peter uh, communicates this to Jesus in Luke 10, 28. Peter says to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What does Jesus say? No. (laughs) No, Peter. Everyone who has lost houses or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, anyone who has lost these things in following me and remaining faithful to me through whatever comes their way, they will receive many times more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. But even here, how is that possible? You know, you follow Jesus. I'm not lifting this. This is easy comparatively, but I mean, I'm not from around here, right? I'm from, Craig says I'm from somewhere else. <laughs> and you all know that when I talk. But, um, you know, and I got to see my folks, but I don't get to see them as frequently. But you know what I gained? All you beautiful people, you know. You will receive many times more in this age. And so we just got to be so careful when these feelings of isolation come our way because the, the reality is we'll see this here in a moment. We're never alone. Never alone. Even when maybe God's people aren't doing what they're supposed to do and we don't feel as attended to, are, are we alone? Not alone. Who is there all the time? God, Christ, His Holy Spirit in us. So feeling isolated during painful, difficult life circumstances, very natural things. Be on guard. That's what I think God is telling us through Psalm 88. But but making it worse by choosing to withdraw ourselves even more or not correcting an incorrect view of isolation, that's only going to prevent. It's only going to be an obstacle to our enduring faithfully. Verses 11 to 18, he's also got an incorrect view of his position here. And, And I guess we should jump back to verse 10 and read that with verses 11 and 12. I divided it up. Whenever I see a sila, I try to divide it up that way as like a stanza, but verse 10 applies to verse 11 and 12. It says in verse 10, Wilt thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise thee? Sila. Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave or thy faithfulness in destruction? Shall thy wonders be known in the dark and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? What do you think? Do you know what, you understand what Heman's saying here, where he's coming from? There's actually two perspectives, I think, going on here because of the phrasing. Um, one of them is correct, like David does sometimes in the Psalms. Um, he's facing death, and he asks God to deliver him because he's like, if I die, I can't praise you right here among your people and point others to you. If you would save me, if you would deliver me from death, God, I'll have the opportunity to testify, I, I, I'll give the glory to you. I will point others to you. Uh, And I believe he's doing that somewhat in verses 10 through 12. But the incorrect view of his position part is that even if God decides that this is Haman's time to leave the earth, if the feeling in verses 1 through 5 is an actual reality, does that mean that God is not showing wonders anymore? There's verse 10 puts it. Does that mean that God's faithfulness or covenant love has ceased to be declared because Heman is deceased? No, in fact, sometimes that is how God delivers us. 
if we really believe in the resurrection, if it's not just something we sing about once a year on Easter. God loves He does. He does. Sometimes that's how God delivers us from our pain and suffering. Heman has an incorrect view of his position as someone who is, is God's by faith in a, for him, coming Messiah. The correct answer to all of Heman's questions in verses 10 through 12 is or should be a resounding yes. I'm going to reread them that way. God, will thou show wonders to the dead? Yes, he does. God, shall the dead arise and praise thee? They do. <laughs> Shall thy loving kindness be declared in the grave? It is. Or thy faithfulness and destruction, another word for the grave. It is. Shall thy wonders be known in the dark and thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? It is. Yeah. So once again, we need to recognize the day Heman is living in here. Jesus has not come to bear God's wrath on the cross for our sins yet. And Jesus has not yet risen from the grave. And honestly, when you go through the Old Testament, there's very little in comparison with the New Testament in what it says about the afterlife or the resurrection. There's not a whole lot. Um, even those who were saved by God's grace through faith back then, they didn't know what every one of us here tonight knows. They didn't know what we know now. We've got uh, so much more full revelation about the salvation that is ours through the Messiah Jesus. For, for us, he has come. He has died. He has bore God's wrath for us. And he has rose. That's past for us. That was coming for, for him. <laughs> He's done that for us. And ensuring his resurrection, ensuring that our spirit goes to be with him forever the moment we leave this earth. And that one day when he returns, our physical bodies will be made new. They'll be made eternal. And they'll rejoin that departed spirit to be with him forever. God says in uh, 2 Timothy 1.10, Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Meaning that we understand this way more than Haman did. Or David did. Or Moses did. Or anybody in the Old Testament did. Because we live on this side of the cross and we live on this side of the empty tomb. The Old Testament faithful, they didn't have the same level of revelation that we enjoy. So Heman, Heman's questions here in verses 10 to 12, they're honest. They're heartfelt. But you and I here tonight, we've got biblical faith-infusing answers. That's what we've got. God does show his wonders to the dead. The dead do arise and praise him. God's loving kindness and faithfulness, it is declared in the grave because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Yeah. We who have so much more truth than he had, we ought never to feel for very long how he feels here. Because truth should triumph over these incorrect views. Don't get caught thinking that this right here is all there. I mean, for Heman, he didn't know about the resurrection like we do. For him... He wanted to praise God. I want to serve you, God. And if, if I die, how am I going to do that? He didn't understand that that's, when you die, that's what you get to do for all eternity. <laughs> that's your joy. He didn't know what we know, what God tells us in 2 Corinthians 2, 9, that eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, neither has entered into the heart of man. Even with our full revelation, we just got a small glimpse of what God has prepared for those who love him. In verses 13 to 18, Heman continues his hope-filled prayer that God would deliver him from this incredible suffering, but he does describe one more incorrect view of his position in verse 14. He asks God, Lord, why have you cast off my soul? 
Why hidest thou thy face from me? Is that a reality? That God had abandoned him? No. It's a feeling. I felt that way. David felt that way. Probably every one of us in this room, if we're honest, has felt that way. But it's not a reality because God does not cast off those who are his. Again, we've got a greater substance of revelation than Heman does. We can correct our incorrect views with truths like we have in Hebrews 13.5, where it says, for he himself, God himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And what Jesus Christ uh, told us, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, our great commission passage, how does it end? Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the world, till the end of the age. We know he won't. Do you know what the evidence that God will never cast us off or forsake us is? Because of what Jesus Christ endured on that cross. Because he was forsaken, we never will be. And you and I here on this side of the cross, we have a Savior who came for us and died for us and rose for us and ascended for us and he's returning for us and he promised us he'll be with us always. He will never cast us off. He will never hide his face from us. And so my question is, will you trust the rock-solid, reliable words of Christ, the word of God, when we're tempted to put our trust in suffering-induced feelings? Once again, this is not our typical moving from fear to faith psalm, but implied in all this sorrow is this question. Will you choose to remain in fear or will you leave it for faith by focusing on who God says he is for us and what he's done for us and what he's promised to be for us and do for us? What will it be? Because maybe tonight you feel like a bruised reed or a smoking almost out ember. And that's the level of your faith, just like it was for human here because of what you're going through. You keep going. Keep going. Keep trusting. Pour out your heart as honestly as Heman does here. God gives you this as an example. Like we said, as we learned, there's a lot of incorrect thinking here that, that we have corrected through other places in God's word. We've got a ton more truth than Heman had. We've got a plethora of promises in God's word that Heman didn't have access to like we do. Does God make beautiful things out of bruised reeds and smoky numbers if they will endure? Can y'all put this picture up? Some of you probably have seen this. I had a terrible thunderstorm. Uh, it was bad. I mean, it was like 40 mile an hour sustained winds. I was worried about the ducks. Kept going out there with my little light. And they were dumb, just standing outside, not making use of my coop. But uh, some of you know I like gladiolus. They're one of my favorite flowers. And we bought like 100 bulbs because I got them on a deal. And we, I'm surprised we don't have a whole yard full of them. But... um. They're kind of about that tall. They hadn't flowered yet. And then we had this storm. And I go out there, and all my hard work's laying down, about half of it. They're all bent over. And, um, but I just thought of this when I was studying this. So I took a picture this week. Look at what that storm did to my beautiful flowers, the stems at that point. They're bent, bruised reeds. Some of them are going like this that are blooming now. That's the point they're blooming. Look at what God did with them. Look at what God did with bruised reeds. And so I invite you, leave focusing on whatever is causing your fear. Maybe you're fine tonight. Take this with you for the days ahead. And instead, focus on who God is. 
and what God's done and what God's promised because he, he can and he does. He makes beautiful things out of bruised reeds and smoking embers for those who will.